Hey, Rob. Who wore a suit today? Look at me. Look at you. Oh, mate. No, what can I say? You should have told me to address appropriately for the engagement, mate. Mate, haven't you watched any of the podcasts? This is how I roll. No, no, you've got you do roll to your own beat, mate. That's what I, I love about you. <laughs> you're, you're your own man, that's for sure. I mean, it's a great part of town, as you know. It's hilly and leafy, and you know, yeah, it's nice. Are, yeah, it's. It, I remember you talking about your kids. You went on the um train up there. Was it the Elton? Did we? Yeah, yeah, we go there. We go there whenever we can. The Diamond yeah. Valley trains. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're cool. I probably it's enjoy a, it more than my kids do. <laughs> mate, if I, mean, I could have a, if I could have a beer on that train and just relax, man, like that would be sick. Oh my god! Hey, you, you, you are you are. I tell you what, you've got you got different thinking, mate. You're 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 an outlier, mate. Of all things you think of, a beer on the back of a little miniature train. Like, yeah. That'd, yeah, that'd be fun. That'd be it's, fun. All right, we'll get started. I was going fishing for a for a compliment myself. I've got nowhere. Anyway, keep going. Mate, I'm trying to start the podcast. I'm sure you can edit all this anyway, so I'm not. I'm not no, but I know. <laughs> Just make it make it, make it make it make it official or sound official. <laughs> all right, we got to compose ourselves, man. All right, mm. all right. Hello and welcome, everyone. I'm Robert Baharian, and this is Masters in Investing. On this show, I talk to guests about financial markets, the economy investing and business don't forget to subscribe and leave us an awesome review let's get into it my guest today and good friend is kobe jones of the silk group a specialized lending group focusing on alternative assets in our conversation today we talk about the rise of alternatives we discuss the role alternatives play in portfolios and what investors can expect from alternatives in the future Hope you enjoy my conversation. Let's get into it. Robert Baharian is the founder and CEO of Baharian Wealth Management, AFSL 526798. The information contained in this podcast may include general advice and does not consider your particular circumstances. You should seek advice from a registered financial advisor who can consider if the general advice is right for you. Kobe Jones, welcome to Masters in Investing. Thank you, Robert. Uh, you've haven't had you on this before, so um, it's it's good to have you on. Hey, um, mate, let's get straight into it. Silk Group, what's your role at the Silk Group? Well, that, firstly, thanks for the opportunity, Rob. But um, I've known you for a number of years, um, uh, and it's a bit funny actually. Talking Who's hosting this podcast, podcast, mate? You or me? Well, the way you're going, I'll have to jump in. But um, look, yeah, we've known each other for a number of years and uh, I've really enjoyed our, our sort of relationship, actually just sharing um, different 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 uh, perspectives on, on the world. Um, but as you know, yeah, look, I'm, I'm the managing director and founder of the Silk Group. Um, we're a specialist financial services provider focusing on wholesale clients. Um, so that that uh, those wholesale clients are high net worth, family offices, commercial and corporate clients, as well as to a lesser extent, institutional clients. Um, we provide three main services and that's around what we term as the portfolio solutions. So they're things like trusteeship, fund administration, uh, licensing, custody and registry. Um, and that means that we're creating a lot of um, managed investment schemes or, or, or managed funds. So people come uh, to you, Kobe, and they say, I need help with this fund that I'm running or wanting to mm -hmm. run. And you help with trusteeship, custody, registry. So you handle investors and communication and all of that stuff. 
Yeah, spot on, spot on. So okay. we undertake the KYC of the investors. We undertake the reporting to the investment managers. We make sure that the, um, the investments that the investment manager is um, investing in is complying in, in accordance with sure. the, uh, the trust deed and the, the uh, you know, disclosure documents, et cetera. So, um, yeah, we, we, we really formed that business a number of years ago, and I'll, and I'll give you the backstory, actually, um, but I'll, I'll, go, I'll go through this. But um, uh, then we provide what we term as the capital solutions, which is really providing uh, capital and, and undertaking capital raising for the various funds that we act as trustee for, uh, and also support the transactional activities. So as, you, as you're aware, um, but given that we focus on alternative assets, um, there's a number of uh, opportunities for us to support our fund managers from an acquisition perspective, but also a divestment perspective. Um, and then um, we're undertaking some um, technology development um, through our digital solutions business. Uh, and that's really creating a, a digital marketplace for the, the, the funds and the trusts that we are trustee for to list onto our platform. Uh, and then within that platform, we'll have a digital exchange, which creates a secondary market, i.e. liquidity in those assets. Who can participate um, in as that? As you know, though, liquidity. Maybe, maybe. Um, so so our focus is purely wholesale clients. So, so no, but I mean, who, who, can, who can participate in that exchange? So is there anyone and everyone that can jump on and become a member of this exchange? How, how, how does that work? Yeah, because it's for wholesale clients only, it'll only be allowed for, you know, wholesale investors. Um, but but the assets themselves, so the asset sponsors, if they're purely a single asset or a fund manager, we can list their their um, right. their, their trusts onto our onto our platform. So our aspirations are global. So we want to create a global marketplace of wholesale investors. Um, but but that's the type of audience that we're really sort of focusing mm -hmm. on. We want to specialise in that area. Um, as you know, uh, and as we just discussed before, the retail landscape is very difficult from a compliance and regulatory perspective. So limits. Yeah a lot of our uh, ability as a product manufacturer to be able to engage with uh, retail investors, not just domestically, but globally. Um, so it just means that our, our area of focus and our specialization is, is on those wholesale investors. Um, uh, well, sorry, Matt. No, so those, those funds that you talk about, so the ones that you administer and the ones that you look after and help establish and the ones mm -hmm. that are on your exchange that you're building out, what, what like what are these investments? Can you just give us a bit of an idea and flavour for those of, for those who don't know who the Silk Group are or what yeah, types of investments that you're you're dealing with? What types mm. of investments are they? Yeah, and and, and and thanks for the question too. And if if I take a step back, if if I look at my background in financial services, I, I've worked at three of the four major banks. Uh, and then I worked for a boutique investment group uh, called Wilson HDM. But when I worked at the um, the big banks and, and even Wilson HDM, um, I primarily focused in alternative investments and alternative assets, uh, as well as structured product. Um, uh, my 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 main um, areas of focus when I was at those institutions were in global financial markets and, and private wealth management. Um, and my my area of focus was primarily on wholesale clients. Uh, and what I've sort of discovered through that process is wholesale clients have a, a heavy, um, uh, not bias, but a heavy interaction and engagement with alternative assets. And alternative assets are primarily unlisted or, or a non-traditional type investments. So if you look at traditional investments, they're listed equities, you know, government bonds and um, sure. maybe even property and, and, and cash. But there's a whole bunch of uh, investment opportunities outside that sort of uh, little ecosystem. Uh, uh, and I say little because if you look at, you know, private equity, if you look at private debt, if you look at um, property, um, even synthetic assets like, you know, let's call it derivatives, 
uh, and even um, more exotic assets. You know, you could say things like uh, intellectual property rights or even fractionalized ownership and, um, you know, artwork or classic cars and those sorts of things. Those, those actual asset classes are emerging and becoming mainstream, you know, in, you know, in the, uh, the investment ecosystem. So, and I'll just say that because historically they've been very difficult to access, mm. um, but now with uh, organizations like ours, where we create those trust structures, it gives people the opportunity to access them on a fractionalized basis. So you're unitizing, you know, those, um, you know, those assets through a trust structure, people are able to access them, um, uh, the, the, the real main uh, difficulty, I think, in alternative assets historically has been liquidity or lack thereof. Uh, and so what we're doing is investing into a digital exchange, which creates liquidity in those assets. Uh, and again, all via trust structures. So it's not directly via you know, shares, um, but all via trust structures. And that means that you can work at all parts of the capital structure. Mm. You can work um, in any sort of geography uh, and right across uh, any sort of asset class. Um, so that, that's... You know, alternative assets are, are, are non-traditional um, and primarily private market type uh, investments. You said before, Kobe, in your dealings, you found that most of your wholesale clients, whether they're family offices or business owners or whoever, typically they're spending most of their time looking at alternative assets. Why do you think that's the case? Why do you think that that particular segment of the market is more focused on those areas? rather than the traditional um, asset classes that, that you spoke about before? I think, look, the benefits that wholesale investors have is that they, they, they can be very much asset rich. They may be income rich, but they're also asset rich. And, and that means also they, they've got a, a longer duration you know, in their portfolio. So it means that they can take um, positions where it's in, in a, an illiquid environment. So um, uh, that's one element to it. The other thing is they've got uh, a huge exposure as it is to uh, listed assets. So they're looking for other opportunities to diversify. And it's in alternative assets that, that they give um, the alpha or the outperformance uh, across uh, uh, um, their, their traditional sort of uh, investment portfolio. So, so because they've got longer duration in their, in their portfolios, um, they're looking for outperformance. Um, they're generally getting that through through alternative assets. So I saw that, um, you know, yeah, throughout my career when I was when I was in, in banking in, in, in particular, and, and you see these family offices and high net worth and business owners, they've got a, a huge exposure to, to businesses. Again, they have those liquid assets, but around those um, sort of core portfolio of assets, they've got you know alternatives. Um, and not to, and again, alternatives can take various shapes, so they can. Yeah, it's alternatives in. just don't fit in the bucket of uh, stocks and bonds and cash. That's it. And, That's or it. real estate. So the, the, four, the four different buckets. And buckets, if something doesn't yeah. fit in there, it's deemed this 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 mysterious alternative investment that is high, high risk and uh, managed by a bunch of charlatans, right? Like that. That's the perception. Am I wrong? Correct. Correct. No, no, you're spot on, Rob. And 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 it's and it's a funny, I won't say misnomer, but but um, you know, it 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 actually trickles down from a number of areas, from from the from the research houses to the insurance providers to the license. Talk, tell me about that. Talk to us about that. Well, I just know when I first started, you know, my business and I talked to them about alternatives. I mean, the the, the insurance providers, you know, you just times it by five for the for the premium because they saw it as, <laughs> as more more risky. Um uh, or riskier. Um, because I don't understand I mean, it. 
Correct. I mean, I, I think, you know, when you're, when you're dealing with traditional license halls and financial planning groups, et cetera, they're ticking boxes, you know, as mm. to the part that um, can be, you know, put onto an APL um, and they're predominantly listed, you know, listed assets. And they like the, 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 um, the liquidity or the, or the liquid nature in, in those traditional asset mm. classes. So that for, for, for the, from their perspective is a de-risk type, you know, investment. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I remember talking to them about, uh, you know, an FX fund, the foreign currency fund. Now, FX is the most highly traded, you know, asset class in the world. And yet in their minds, because it's non-traditional, i.e. Mm. non-equities and, and not bonds, uh, it's high risks. So therefore, you're in the high risk bucket and your premiums mm. go up. So, mm. um, And then you get the research houses. So I think they're very, very conscious of, you know, having liquidity in, in portfolios. Um, and so, therefore, you know, um, private equity or uh, venture capital or private credit um, you know, and property-related type type funds just don't don't fit into that sort of, you know, traditional type bucket. And so, therefore, they're deemed as as alternative and therefore more risky. Um, so, yeah, I, I, you know, you know, I, I'm in I'm in that space because I've seen the opportunities that um, you know, alternatives bring and the, and the and the wealth that it can generate, um, you know, to investors. And, you know, there's some learnings there with high net worth and, as I said, mm. family offices and business owners being exposed to asset class and being wealthy. Mate, what, what's, like, what are the thing? what are the key or most common funds that you guys are dealing with? Are they property related? Are they mm. cryptocurrency re- related? Like, mm. what, what are the, what are the, and I'm sure there's many of them, but can you sort of just pick out a couple that you find that you guys are dealing with more, more often than, than others? Yeah, it, again, another good question. It's it's primarily three, let's call them asset classes or sectors that right. alternatives are really becoming uh, mainstream and, and um, you know, the norm. Uh, and that's mainly in private equity. Um, so right. people are familiar with private, private equity. Again, historically been very difficult for, um, you know, individual investors to, to access. But we're creating these trust structures or funds so that people can take ownership in, in private companies on a, on a portfolio basis. Um, the other one is private credit. So, um, again, historically, um, the banks in Australia have dominated the uh, the lending landscape, particularly in commercial real estate. Um, but more and more uh, uh, commercial um, real estate uh, credit funds have, have emerged. Um, so you've got the likes of Qualitas and Wingate and um, CVS Lane and, and mm. you know, um, MaxCap, those sorts of guys have done fantastically well, you know, in providing just very focused um, credit into into real estate um, on a commercial basis, um, uh, but now you know more and more funds have emerged in, the, in that area, and we're certainly a trustee of a number of those. Uh, and then uh, the, the other one is is the pr- uh, property equity fund. So people are, are taking positions in, in uh, property equity developments um, where they're taking you know short fairly short term um, duration risk. Um, for for development um, or property developments, mm. uh, and again doing it on a um, on a um, sort of quasi syndicated basis with multitude of uh, investors. And so, so are, three, other gone. No, no, I was going to say, but there's other other um, asset classes that we're, we're acting as trustee, whether it be you know in infrastructure. Um, sure, we've got one in hotels. Um, we've got uh, we, we used to have an energy energy fund. Um, we've even got a fractionalised ownership in classic cars and prestigious cars, um, an FX fund, uh, and you mentioned cryptos. Is that Chrome we, Temple? We had, uh, correct, Chrome Temple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's pretty cool, actually. That's really cool. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, it's not to say you, you, you know you as a unit holder can drive these cars. They're actually an asset, and they're they're. Um, no, it's like saying I own I own shares in NAB. You can't go and use the building. Like that's it. I'm right? yeah, <laughs> Correct, correct. Or you know, artwork, right? So you get you, you can fractionalize ownership and artwork. It uh, mm. doesn't mean you can just go and take it and hang it on your wall at, at home. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, they're they're the three uh, you know, property and credit as well as private equity. So, um, are you finding that there's just because one of the things that that we're seeing and, and everyone's seeing across the, the world is just so much money and so much liquidity, but such a shortage of assets to be buying. So, you know, you talk to people who've got enough money in equities, who've got enough money in residential property, who earn good good money, who don't need to hold lots of cash or they don't need to hold bonds. And I guess that might be the typical. Um, high net worth, ultra high net worth client that you might be describing where they've sold a business or they're running a business. They've got um, ample liquidity in, I don't know, their stock portfolio. And they're basically capped at, well, when I say capped out, they've got enough of those different asset classes, right? And mm -hmm. so, I mean, how much more Aussie stocks do you own, right? I mean, they, yeah. they, presumably they get to a point where it's, you need to start looking at alternative assets. And then you start looking at things like whether it's artwork or cryptocurrency or whatever it is. Mike, do you think that there's, there's a problem here to the extent that there's just too much money slashing around the system with interest rates that being at zero and people are just chasing and just bidding prices up? Yeah. Again, really good observations, man. And I think that's what's driven the, the multiples, you know, in our, in our stock market in particular, because the, the, I mean, the cash rate's the lowest it's been in history, right? So it's, it's never been at these levels. So it just means that, you know, to borrow money uh, and invest that money is a pretty, pretty cheap exercise. And what that's done, I think, is inflated um, a lot of the, the listed stocks. But off the back of that, people are going, okay, where else do I, do I look at, at deploying my capital? Mm -hmm. So um, alternatives is definitely a beneficiary of that. Um, you know, there are instances where you hear of people borrowing cheap money to go and lend it out at, at sure. more expensive money. Um, and, and the gap there too, uh, as an example in credit, is that the traditional banking channels have really left a vacuum in that sort of middle market where developers are looking for capital to undertake a development. The banks won't fund it. So Why won't they fund the, it, Kobe? Because lot, so many people ask, well, if the banks aren't touching it, why should I touch it? Is it a banking issue? Is it a regulatory issue? Like what, or is it a combination of both? What is it? Yeah, it's a, it's a combination of both. I mean, arguably, uh, I think there's been a really good structural shift, you know, post the, uh, the Banking Royal Commission. Uh, and it's meant that uh, APRA's, you know, had some, uh, I guess, well, greater input into the capital controls and the capital requirements um, uh, and their limits on, on the banks in terms of where they can and can't um, lend to. Uh, and I think uh, historically developers had it pretty good in terms of the cost of funds, but arguably as a bank, it, a double A minus institution shouldn't have been lending at those rates, you know, for that, you know, you know type of risk. Um, so the LVRs have certainly come in, um, you know, their, their pre-sale requirements have certainly gone up, their risk appetite, you know, has decreased, you know, within, a, if you look at a bank's perspective, it's at a portfolio basis. So you can't mm. have too much exposure just to property. So, you know, if, for example, APRA says, and I'm being hyped. I mean, if they're a bank that, though, what exposure are they going to have? 
Well, that's the thing. They've, they've got to look at uh, you know other means of, of, of uh, deploying capital. And that's where you can see there's a lot more lending to retail and there's probably more lending to institutional, right? So, um, but in the mid-market, you know, where the development and development risk is, uh, the banks don't have as much appetite as they used to. So it's not to say that taps, uh, the tap's turned off. It's just, it's it's turned, it's it's not as, as strong as it, uh, what, it, what it used to be um, uh, in terms of the appetite from the banks. Um, so, you know, it just means that um, second tier lenders or, or non-bank uh, financiers are able to come in to provide that capital. And where does that capital come from? Investors. So investors are saying, hey, I want five, seven, 10% on my money if it's a first mortgage. Um, and they can actually get that because the borrower was willing to um, pay for that so that they can actually undertake the development. And, and again, the developer, you know, can't un unlock their development profit without that, you know, that, that credit um, you need the money to make, to make the thing real, right? And so what, what, what are we eating into? Is it, uh, is the developer eating into the, their margin? So instead of being able yeah. to borrow from the bank at five, they're having to pay 10 somewhere else or whatever the number, I'm just making those numbers up. Mm. I mean, ultimately it's the end purchase that pays, right? Um, unless oh. prices can't get bid up any higher than the developer eats into, into their own margin. But presumably there's enough fat in there that they can absorb that, right? Yeah. And, 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 well, and that's in, 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 in good Good circumstances, not not always. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, those people don't get the money lent to them, right? That's it. That's it. I mean, and look, you still have to have you have to be prudent when you're when you're lending that money. So it's not like you've got a loan to value ratio of ninety percent or something like that. You know, on a first mortgage, you still have to be prudent, and you still have to have, you know, yeah, your pre-sale requirements. Is it in location? Um, you know, you know, is is um, is, is, is the project itself being de-risked? Does it have permits, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, it's not like, you know, you're just going out, you know, willy-nilly, you know, funding these developers because they're, they're asking for it. You still have to undertake the uh, the credit assessment, you know, on, on these particular developers and the, and the projects that they're undertaking. Um, because, yeah, we've seen, you know, not, not, too, not too long ago, the likes of Stellar Property Group, et cetera, you know, blowing up. Um, you know, uh, they've been they were overpaying for sites. Their the cost of funds was way over, and mm. you know they they had a liquidity issue. Um, uh, so yeah, it's not like it's just you know everything just goes up. You know, um, <laughs> you know as everyone sort of thinks in property, it, it's not the case. Um, but but if if developers have got enough margin in it, and that's one of the considerations that a funded you know has is how much uh, development profit there is. Mm. Um, uh, as, as, as one way of ensuring that you're sort of de-risking, um, you know, that's where really work's coming in. So I think gone are the days of developers making 50% plus on everything they touched. You know, it, it's obviously yeah, it's sort of come in since then. Can I title the name of this podcast, Everything Just Goes Up? <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, if, if only that was true. <laughs> Um, but having said, Rob, like we're, we're, we're very lucky to be living in Australia, mate. So I believe, you know, yes, COVID's been a very difficult thing for us all, but post-COVID, you know, and, and even during COVID, Australia's done very, very well from a, from a global perspective. And once the borders do open up, we will still see more migration, I think, come into, come into Australia. Well, New South Wales are already accepting, accepting overseas. I mean, I that's think that's, that's, that's the first sign of... Um, Government, not, governments realize it, right? But I think we have to realize that that, that can't turn, that's not going to stop. No. It's just a fundamental backbone of our country mm. and our economy and our potential, right? So that has, so there will be, there, that will be worked out as to how that can uh, be accommodated, right? Yeah. Mate, before yeah. you were talking about um, 
um, licensees and advisory groups. Can we can we mm. talk about that a little bit? Because mm. certainly in conversations that I have with, in my circles, that the those that operate under the sort of wholesale banner, uh, like I said, uh, uh, running shady um, shady operations at the the, in the you know in their basement or in the from the back garage, <laughs> like. <laughs> good generalizations what, yeah um yeah t- t- totally right what is it that the retail investor is missing in all of this what are they missing out on if if anything at all yeah uh, look don't get me wrong not necessarily all wholesale products are for, for should be accessible to retail clients um but wholesale products give huge amount of opportunity for investors to make returns commensurate with the risk they, they get those returns and again you know, if I'm dealing with high net worth family offices and, and business owners, they have a huge portion of capital into, let's call them uh, alternative assets, right? So, so non, non, non-traditional assets. Uh, and sadly, it just means because they are wholesale product, the retail investors don't get uh, opportunity to access them. And mm. not all products should be sold to retail um, uh, Absolutely. Investors, yep. Right? Yep. So, so, you know, let's just, you know. Clear that, that right Yeah. Front. Correct. Correct. Um, but... Um, you know there are some brilliant products that are that that are out there, some opportunities that are out there that retail investors actually miss out on mm. um, for their for their savings, for their retirement, for you know for for their lifestyle. And and I think you know there has to be some some way of of being able to um, provide those opportunities to to retail investors. You know um, to to some extent. Uh, I'm not saying that sort of broadly. So so again, you know. Let's keep that clear. Um, but you know, sadly, retail investors, because of the, the regulatory environment, because of the regime that we're all operating under, they're very limited in what they can and can't access. It's very much off the shelf. And the reality is too, because of compliance costs within the retail space, you know, it just means margins or, or, or costs um, actually eat into re- returns. You know, for those retail investors. Meaning, if um, I if if I've got a if I'm running a wholesale fund and in an, and an investment. If I want to then bring that to the retail market and on mass, the 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 regulatory environment is prohibitive. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it just creates. Yeah, it creates. Yeah, it does. It, it, it's well, it can't be that prohibitive if there are that many retail products on the market with good businesses being raising millions, if not billions, of dollars. Can't be that prohibitive if you, if you can get on the masses uh, with you. Yeah, but look at the type of product, you know, that, that are being offered, you know, and they're primarily listed uh, and it is very much a volume game. So alternative assets, they, they are a higher touch, you know, type environment um, where, you know, you, you need... Resources. What do you mean they're higher touch? Well, you've got to undertake due diligence and assets. You've got to, um, you know, make sure you've got the right um, processes. But you, still have to, you still have to do all those things under, if you're running a retail fund, in fact, you're yep. probably under more scrutiny. If anything, you are, you are. But if you think about your universe of uh, investments and the sheer volume of them, if, if you're investing in BHP and Telstra and, you know, the ANZ and, and NAB, you know, in, in terms of their listed um, stocks, if you're putting in $10 or $100 million, it's probably not too different in terms of your due diligence, right? Um, because you, you're accessing publicly available information. Whereas in private markets, you know, you're, you're under the bonnet, you're, you're asking questions, you know, you're, up, you're, you're taking a very different sort of level of, of DD um, and, and the ticket sizes are generally not as large. Um, so I think compliance costs, 
you know, at one end, you know, a more expensive retail, but also the the operating costs, you know, in the alternative asset investment is is can be can be expensive as well. Do you think that um with with all the uh, all the money chasing down yield and returns and 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 whatnot, and with you know, there's more and more talk of rates rising. Um, obviously, globally, New Zealand raised rates last week, you know, if you talk about being close to home, like if, if we are in this uh, realm of um, rising rates, and if you think about duration as they relate to assets, so stocks having long duration, so not the sort of the typical duration that people think about when they think about bonds and, the bond, and, the, and, and bond duration, but um, real estate, real estate development, um, you know, if, if we're now moving into this era of rate rises now, which it's, I don't know, we've been talking about it for the last 10 or 15 years, so maybe this time it, it, it comes true. But it certainly does feel that way with, with inflation and, um, mm. and employment numbers and, and, and so forth. Like, are we getting towards a tail end of this cycle where people are just more concerned about the return and not the risk? Am I making sense? Like, where yeah, people... I mean- Sorry, Rob. Yeah, it's been risk on because because of cost of funds, it's been risk on um, for some time. Yes. Yeah, so um, is that an issue now for for, the, for if we talk about alternatives and if we talk about duration on classic cars? Like, you can't just sell a classic car like that. Maybe you can. I don't know. I could be totally wrong. Yeah. But I, I I presume the duration of a of a classic car or a or an IT company is way longer, right? And yeah. so if you've got a, a rising interest rate environment. Presumably, that's not good for those assets. Uh, in some asset classes, you're correct. Yeah, but but if you look at it on a portfolio basis, and you've got you know ten thousand cars in that portfolio, then then you're sort of mitigating some of that duration risk, right? So it really depends on the type of asset class as to the effect of duration um, with, within a within a portfolio. Um, uh, uh, and some, as you know, uh, alternative asset classes, you know they're almost uncorrelated to traditional, you know, assets. So, so one example I'm thinking of right now is what we call a life settlements fund. And that life settlements fund actually takes positions in life policies. And basically what they're doing is investing in mortality um, and mortality rates. So it's got nothing to do with, you know, interest rates, yield mm. curves, um, FX, you know, rates, you know, equity markets, et cetera. These, these asset classes are completely uncorrelated to, to those traditional asset classes. So if, for example, you know, again, taking another um, uh, alternative asset class as being credit, you know, I'm lending money at 10%, regardless of what the, the, the yield curve is doing or short-term, you know, money market is doing, you know, I'm getting an interest rate of X percent on an on a either quarterly or semi-annual or annualised basis, even capitalised basis. So, you know, that's, that's, that's on, a, on an individual, you know, asset level. And sure. Then, at a portfolio level where you've got a multitude of these different you know assets within that portfolio and they will settle at different terms and the reality is too rob you know if for example interest rates start ticking up you know that will be reflected in in the cash flows of those of those portfolios um if anything it um it would have a positive you know positive effect um so it really depends on the, on the asset class and not just the single asset that people are investing in but also at a portfolio level um, I've mentioned this to a few people now. I don't know how many people have actually actually seen it. Um, I was talking to um, 
Richard Quinn of Bentham Asset Management last week, and we we're talking mm. about uh, the composition of investor portfolios, what they used to look mm. like, you know, 20 years ago, what they look like now. Sure. And in order to get, I mean, this is a reflection of the interest rate environment, one, mm. but they were talking about, um, yes, yeah, so, so don't, don't talk about interest rates, but they were talking about the composition of one's portfolio in order to get an expected return with a certain amount of risk. And basically all that was in that portfolio was stocks and bonds. Mm. Fast forward 20 years, 25 years, 25 years. Now the composition of one's portfolio needs to look like stocks, real estate, uh, VC, private credit, uh, crypto, whatever it is, right? And it's mm. just this, it's a, it's a mixed bag of, um, of, of investments. And so the, 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 the average weighted returns is the same as what you used to get back then. Uh, and it's so too is, 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 I mean, the risk, is, the risk is there as well. So it's managed accordingly. But the, the point that the article was trying to make was that 20 years ago, you needed only these two things to give you the return. Now you need mm. these six things to give you that return. Mm. Now, yes, I, I, I totally understand that it, it is an interest rate issue and mm. what interest rates were back in the mid nineties is very different to what they are um, today. But I'm also, I also think, and I just want to get your take on it, is what used to be available to investors 20, 25 years ago is not what is available now. What, back then, the things that you and I are talking about today or you're talking about today, one, probably never even existed. Mm. Two, if they existed, they probably were existing only for large institutions and pension funds and, and so forth mm. um, and, and um, significant families and, and so forth. And here we are now, you're talking about buying fractionalized uh, shares in cars or artwork and, and things like that. So I think we're in this completely different world. I want to get your take on that, but also want you to comment on, if you can, in, on the risk appetite of people today, maybe versus back then. Mm. Uh, look, there's a, number of, there's a number of elements to that, okay? So you're exactly right. 100%. Yeah, 25 years ago, access to certain type of investments, very different today. Uh, interest rates, you know, very different today. Um, uh, and I think also there's been a, a level of either upskilling and, and knowledge within the community. Uh, sadly, I think just generally, though, Australia lags behind in, in alternative assets in particular versus some, you know, other jurisdictions, you know, whether it be out of the US or Asia, you know, UK, Europe, they're, they're far more... Um, uh, uh, advanced than what we are down down here. I'm just um, noting that because I want to talk about that in a second. I'll let you finish this part. Yeah, uh, yeah, b b by all means. But you know, I, I think there, it's it's an, it's a it's a, the sum of all those parts that you've just highlighted um, as to why uh, investors are now turning to alternatives. Uh, and I think, look, it, it, at this given point in time, where interest rates are, um, and where where um, uh, the, the the listed listed markets are, and, and particularly the ASX, you know, is there's probably more downside risk uh, than anything. So people are looking to pivot, and and don't forget to, uh, uh, Rob, you know, it took it took a good ten years for the ASX to recover post the the GFC. So it took it took a long time for it to get back to the same levels as what it was um, post GFC. So there's a lot of 
lost wealth in that period of time. And so people, are, 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 it's forced them, you know, it's, 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 it's you know, really driven um, the need for people to look at alternatives uh, versus traditional asset classes. But, but interestingly, you know, that's always been the mindset of, of business owners and high net worth and family offices who have always, you know, uh, invested in alternatives. Now, you know, owning something 100%, you know, in a company is an alternative type investment. Owning owning a hundred percent of a development is an alternative. Now, though, when you've got organisations like ours, where we're fractionalising and unitising, you know, these assets, it's giving people more access and choice, you know, into those alternative asset classes, um, which again historically had you know huge barriers to entry. Um, so, so we're op, you know opening the market market up further and further, but unfortunately, as you know, those those structures aren't available to retail. So it's not like you know mums and dads um, you know can actually invest in these alternative asset classes. Um, and I and again, I, I'm not saying anything's you know. I don't think it's one size fits all. Okay, so so there is a there is a need for liquidity, et cetera, and you know some of the um some of the retail clients don't necessarily have that sort of duration or or you know that there is a need for them to have liquidity. So again, it doesn't necessarily suit you know all all those type of clients, but certainly wholesale clients where you know they're asset rich and you know they could they've got income to support you know their lifestyle expenses, they can actually take you know a different view from a portfolio perspective versus say a retail client. But again, organisations like ours are creating these trust structures to give people that you know that access to those type of investment opportunities 15, 15 years ago uh, you know we say 15 years ago sounds like a long time but it's more or less in and around the gfc right yeah um, um even you know even to to this day uh there are still people and investors making a shift from what they've been used to for decades and decades from their uh Australian direct share portfolio of, you know, 23 different stocks and, you know, mm. that's their portfolio to being able to move into managed investments to go from managed mm. investments from onshore to potentially even offshore to then go from managed investments, to exchange traded funds, and then yeah. being able to trade securities in Israel uh, mm. at the click of a button. You, mm. We couldn't do that. Couldn't do that 10 or 15 years ago. Maybe we mm. could have, I might, I might be exaggerating, but Hopefully you get the point. The point is, is that um, technology and the way investment markets and providers are evolving uh, are allowing investors to have access to these. And kind of what I'm hearing from you and what I feel is, is, is that once we go through the universe of bonds and stocks and get that out of the way, then we start sort of, you know, sticking our neck out and going, oh, what's this thing called alternatives? This, mm. this has been going on for for years and years and years but it's just that it hasn't been available to the majority yeah. of people and now all yeah. of a sudden it's becoming available to more people but only a certain group of people and maybe mm. in five or six or seven years time becomes available to a further subset of people and a further mm. subset of people and it becomes um a normal component of people's portfolios but you said before that australia lags um was it exposure to uh, alternatives compared to Global peers, is that what you were saying? Mm. Can you yeah, just correct. explain that? Like, what can you shed, shed light on that? Because I'm, I'm, I'm curious to know some numbers if you've got any. Yeah, I mean, I, I won't. You don't, don't quote me on any of these numbers, but uh, I know historically, you know, it's it's been the old 60-40, you know, in Australia with uh, 60%, you know, uh, stocks and 40% bonds or, or cash. 
you know, maybe a bit of bit of property. So, um, and and really no exposure or very little exposure to alternatives. And and that's not just retail clients, by the way. It's also, but you know, inclusive of right. wholesale clients. And this is this is something you know, probably five ten years ago, you know, very very underrepresented and very underweight, you know, in alternatives. And I do think it's sort of picked up, particularly with those three main areas that I, I mentioned before, being private equity, private credit, and also uh, property or unlisted property. Um, uh, so exposures have certainly gone, you know, in, in, in that direction. Um, uh, but if you look at big industry funds and, you know, pension funds, et cetera, mm. um, they're still still uh, underweight, you know, alternatives. Um, but again, underweight it's players relative like- Relative to what? Well, it can, it, offshore, offshore peers, it can also right. be, you know, I, I think of- um, I think of instances like uh, the Future Fund. I mean, the Future Fund has performed extremely well, uh, and they've got a heavy bias to alternatives. Um, in fact, you know, if you if you conclude, they've got an alternatives bucket, but if you include also property, as in direct property as well as private equity, and I think infrastructure, it makes up like two thirds of their portfolio, um, which is which yeah, is wow. absolutely huge. It's a big number is along it? that. I, 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 it's still a bit, yeah. It's but it's more than fifty percent, let's say. Okay, um, uh, but but and they and they're outperforming from a, a volatility and a, a returns perspective. You know, again, compared to their their peers, um, but again, I think there's some regulatory overlays. Um, but it was a good point you made around technology. So I think I think regulation is 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 certainly having an impact where it reduces barriers to entry um, for you know market segments. Mm. Um, technology is making things far more efficient. Um, you know, we're becoming a bit more borderless in terms of how, how we can and can't invest. Uh, and I think the notion of, you know, there's a lot of talk recently around peer-to-peer -peer type you mm. know, uh, investing. Um, uh, and, that's, and that's really emerged. Um, but again, you want, you want some regulatory overlay and compliance um, to be able to protect investors. So it's not like, oh, you can just do anything. Uh, again, because you're in wholesale, it doesn't mean, okay, great. You can, you know, sure. just disclaim no. yourself away and, you know, you, you can, you know, everyone else takes on the risk. Uh, I think from a reputational and insurance and a, you know, a longevity perspective, you don't want to be undertaking any sort of uh, activities that can compromise the integrity of, of the, the transactions and, and uh, the product that you're working with. Um, but there's a lot of inputs into um, uh, bringing these opportunities to, to, to market uh, and therefore increasing exposure to alternative assets. Um, I, I do believe, you know, over time, uh, alternative assets will make up a much, much bigger representation in, in uh, investors' portfolios, but not necessarily retail. Uh, I, I don't think that will necessarily happen, you know, in 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 the short term, um, but certainly in the in the long term, there will there will be things that um, I think um, product that will that will sort of suit uh, the retail investor over time. When it comes to advisors, wealth management um, firms, and and alike, like do they need to start thinking about how they manage their businesses and client books and whatnot ultimately. Because um, I almost feel like, like are we as advisory firms doing our clients to some extent a bit of a disjustice to the extent that we're not talking to them about other options and alternatives? For the right ones, mind you, like let's, let's mm. just be crystal clear about this. Mm. Are we looking out for their best interest or are we look, making sure that we don't get, you know, crucified for doing the wrong thing? Rob, if you just go back to the, to the question of what is a financial advisor meant to do? Is it protecting wealth? Is it generating wealth? Is it 
you know, meeting someone's goals and objectives? Is it all that, or a combination of all those things, right? Probably a combination of all those things, I'd say. Correct. Now, arguably, can you just do that through through certain products and 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 uh, asset classes? Probably not. I mean, the reality is too. I mean, you know, most. Uh, oh, you might be, but you may not be doing the best. That it may not be the the best way of doing it. No, and I would argue too that uh, you know if you look at if you look at the global universe of investments, and you look at you know where most financial advisors' uh, uh, clients' portfolios reside, it's primarily in Australian listed assets. And and of those listed assets, there's what is it two two and a half thousand three thousand stocks. You know, it may be primarily in the top fifty stocks. Now, if you look at the Australian stock market, what does it make up? You know, globally, it's probably less than two percent. It's two percent. And you're and you're investing in fifty stocks. Like wow, and that's just listed, right? So you're missing out on a whole bunch of you know other asset classes, whether it be real assets, being real estate, infrastructure, um, even public assets um, directly. Um, you know, uh, private 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 assets, being private equity, private private debt. Um, and again, synthetic assets or even more exotic assets like, you know. Mate, who, who's, who's going to keep up with that when people can't even keep up with the six and a half thousand Australian share funds that we have, right? Very good question. I mean, I mean, there's, there's, there's limitations around resourcing and bandwidth, right? So it's not as simple as say, oh, okay, great. I'll press a button and I get access to 55,000 stocks or whatever it might be. I mean, that's a very valid point, right? Um, but there has to be some level of uh, either due diligence and oversight and governance, you know, into the underlying assets because it's just not like you're going to throw darts, you know, at a dartboard and, and, and hope for the best. You really want to make sure that you're accessing quality investments, right? Um, so you as a financial advisor, it's very difficult to do that analysis, you know, so you want to have some, you know, uh, capability of outsourcing some of that research, um, but the research houses themselves should also be looking at, you know, other alternate investment asset classes um, because that actually provides benefit, you know, to, to the investors. But it's not, as, it's not as just simple as just saying, okay, I press a button and, you know, away you go. I mean, and I think too, like, and again, it's naturally as a business owner, you, you, you do things that make your life a little bit easier and more uh, efficient. Um, and so therefore, you know, if you're operating with a platform or via an APL or whatever, you, you've got to naturally select those those product, you know, um, for for. Yeah, but whose who's interests are we, are we serving there? Are we trying to are we trying to streamline our, our business efficiency? Which, you know, one would argue that wrong more, yeah. no, there's nothing wrong because otherwise, if you don't have a streamlined, clean running business, how can you expect to look after your clients when you can't even look after your own backyard, right? So yes, you're you're absolutely right, but I, I suspect a lot of what you're talking about has to do with the way we always used to do things, the way um, advisory firms were set up to then be run by licensees. And so Mm. we've, we've gone from, you know, the big institutions to then licensee groups and Mm. look, don't get me wrong. I think licensee groups are are, are great if that's what you want and need, and it serves your purpose. But I suspect a lot of them would be still trying to manage their own risks. Right. I mean, we're all trying to manage, manage risks here. um, And at the same time, balance, actually do doing what we're actually there to to do do. i I just yeah i just wonder what it is that we're not looking at for clients that's all Mm. i I think look technology will play a role in that uh though rob to create some efficiency in that uh, and scalability so there's a lot of due diligence you know in an asset 
um, or a product or a project, whatever it might be, a sponsor, um, before it's, you know, being offered. Uh, and then there's ongoing, you know, disclosure requirements, you know, on, on, on those uh, particular assets or asset sponsors. So, um, you know, it's, and it's not that simple. It's, it's not as simple as just saying, oh, because of tech or because of regulation, whatever, you know, we can press a button and, and we get access to a multitude of investment opportunities. It's not, it's not that simple. Uh, and I think, you know, you're well aware that certain um, in, in private credit is a good example. You know, when you, when you lend money to a particular project or asset, it's got a finite duration. So it may only last for 12 months or 18 months or six months, uh, and then it's finished, you know, it's just extinguished. And then, yeah. you know, as an investor, I'll receive my you know, principal plus my, my coupon or interest, um, and then I've got to look at reinvesting that. So, I'm not, you know, again, a lot of due diligence up front, you know, on those particular assets before they're offered to investors. So, yeah, you, you've still got to have internal efficiencies, and, again, technology provide that and, you know, capability and resourcing, et cetera. Um, but from an... A, a, uh, from a, a financial planner's business perspective, you know, you've got a combination of what your operational requirements are and the outcomes that you're providing, you know, your, your clients are, you've got to, I guess you've got to sort of balance that. In your conversations with um, investors, let's, let's say, you talk about before uh, the volatility in markets last year was a really, really good example of um something coming out of nowhere and derailing everything, right? And, that, and that, that's always a, a risk. Um, and, and over the last few years, we've seen technology really uh, accelerate. Uh, we've seen this whole conversation we're having today really push forward and people be able to access um, a whole bunch of products and um, whether it's fractionalized or just done in very different, different um, ways. Do you have any insight into whether or not people are um, cutting their exposure to more traditional um, asset classes and redeploying them uh, into alternatives? Do you have any insight into that? Yeah, not, not the clients I'm dealing with. It's, it's pretty much been business as usual that I've seen. If anything, they've acted more opportunistically to, you know, get, get more exposure, you know, per se, um, what do you mean acting uh, but, more opportunistically? What does that mean? Well, they're, they're seeking more opportunities. I mean, so they're actively rate, seeking more. Yeah. I mean, if you speak to high net worth and family offices and various investor groups, I mean, they're, they're, they're seeking certain rates of returns and they're, they're primarily going to get them through alternatives at this point in time. So, um, you know, why I, you can't get those, those expected returns are not available in other asset classes? Market, yeah, yeah, I mean, look at bond rate, bond yields right now and, and look at where the equity market is right now. So, um, you know, obviously the cash rate. So that's that's driven driven up, you know, asset prices, I think, to, to this point in time. Yes, we saw a lot of volatility. Let's call it over the last 18 months, not just 12 months, but let's call it 18 months. Um, but, you know, it, it means that, you know, in, investors are looking potentially more for, for more stable returns you can, and you can get them through alternative asset classes. That's interesting. Like so I've got two questions for you. The first is um, in your conversations, what are the rates of return that investors are seeking? Well, it depends on the nature of, of the investments that they're pulling capital in. So if you're doing first mortgage you know, investments, you know, investors are looking at, you know, five and a half, six percent, right up to 10 percent, you know, even even north of that on first mortgage, you know, um, type type investments. Um, uh, then, you know, if, you, if you're doing sort of second mortgages, as an example, you're starting to talk about, let's call it 15 percent plus. Uh, 
uh, and that's lent to an to an asset, so it's all asset backed. And then you've got um, you know even even the property development assets. You know you're north of 15, 16, or twenty percent plus. You know that's the expectation. You know from 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 a capital perspective. If you if you're going and and there's shorter durations. Okay, so you've got. 12 months to, you know, let's call it 36 months, you know, with, um, you know, with, with their investment duration. Whereas if you're going into private equity, I mean, the expectation is, you know, north of 25%, you know, like, I mean, we, we invest our own money, um, you know, into a number of funds that, um, that we act as a trustee for. Um, and yeah, private equity funds, you know, are shooting north of 25%. Um, uh, so really, it really depends on within the alternatives bucket where they're deploying uh, mm. capital. Um, but but the expected rates returns are kind of in that sort of broad broad sort of buckets. Um, those returns that you talk about where, it, you know, you talk 10, 15, 20, 60 to 20, 25 percent, uh, clearly there's much higher rates of risk that one takes on and whether it's liquidity, if you, liquidity being a risk or it, the whole uh, investment thesis failing, that's a risk. Um, those numbers, are they, what, are they consistent to what they've been over the last few years? Is it lower than what it's been? Is it higher? Can you just give us insight on, on that? Uh, I think in the credit space, uh, uh, there has been sort of margin compression or, or yield compression, you know, um, but they've sort of stabilised more recently. And I think it's a combination of, yes. The Where do they stabilise that? So, well, first mortgages, I mean, from an investor's perspective, you're talking, you know, five and a half, six percent, right up to 10%. So, you know, it, it's still a healthy margin over the cash rate or the yeah, absolutely. swap rate. Um, but you know, it was it was it was it was normalized to be, you know, talking around nine to ten percent on first mm. mortgages, but they've certainly come in. And I think, as I said, it's a combination of the, the yield curve. Uh, sorry, the, the the cash rate coming in, but also the the, the lack the, the level of competition um, within within credit funds. There's just a massive emergence of, mm. of credit funds. Do you think um, that's a fad, or do you reckon that'll 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 continue? Uh, it's sustainable. It's sustainable. I mean, if you look at if you look at um, you know the Australian market from a from a non bank financing perspective um, versus say the US or Europe, you know we've probably got a, you know another you know, four times where we are now, you know, to go, you know, because in the US, as an example, I think non-bank financing makes up about 80% of the market, which is huge. Um, same with you. What are we here in Australia? 10% at best, you know, like at best. Non-bank. Non-bank, yeah, correct, correct. So if you include the four majors and say Macquarie, I mean, that, 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 that is the bulk of the market. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's big, it's big uh, market share. Oh, is, and and if is. you, and maybe it's a thing that, um, Australian investors need to get used to, right? It's this 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 shift in in the way things are done, yeah. um, and you know that'll that'll take time. If if you're talking about four times the size, but then what about in 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 private equity or uh, VC? Um, I, I don't know how long fractionalized car investing's been going on. Um, yeah. Simon, loving, Simon might that. know a bit bit more about that than than you and I, <laughs> but. <laughs> but um, uh, but you, you, you know, if you talk about VC and and and, mm. and other funds, you know that that what about that? How what are the returns that these types of funds been generating? Um, if we look back five, ten years ago, yeah, I mean, I don't know if the returns are too different today as to what they okay. were five, ten years, but it's more around just the market acceptance of them. So again, mm. Australia has 
historically was very underrepresented in the VC space. So you generally have to go to the likes of, you know, the US or Israel, et cetera, yeah. to actually, you know, see these sort of great sort of startups. Um, and you'd argue that some of the quality of the assets in Australia probably weren't, weren't, weren't as high mm. as what they are today. So they've really, you know, startups have come a long way uh, and there's a better ecosystem here. So people are looking for access into them. But I think people are, you know, are wanting um, smaller exposures to, you know, those VC type companies. Um, so again, through a fund structure, it really gives people that um, diversification, you know, into the and into the underlying assets themselves. Um, I, I think we still got a whilst to go in terms of the the VC space. There, there is, it's it's a relatively uh, immature market here, and the government mm. is actually doing things, you know, to actually support that. You know, what they call the ESVCLP. Um, regime, which are early stage venture capital limited partnerships. It's just a really a, a, a tax driven structure that mm. allows investors um, to generate um, you know, tax free sort of returns. So they're really encouraging, um, you know, the the investors to come in. There's also the um, uh, I forget the name of the um, uh, anyway, but there's a, there's a different type of structure. Um, uh, that uh, you know, different investors can deploy the capital into these sort of early stage uh, companies. Um, uh, but but I think you know there's still a long way to go. We just simply don't have the, the sheer scale from a, from a sponsor or an asset you know company perspective versus say you know in other parts of the world. It mm. Just it's relatively immature. But uh, Australia is becoming far more you know um, well regarded or becoming more well regarded, if that's the right English, um, uh, on a global stage perspective. You know the quality of the the, the startups is you know just fantastic now. It's really really good. And I think mm. you know during COVID and some of the the issues that we've seen geopolitically is just really forced more innovation in Australia, and for us to you know produce more and manufacture more and develop more here in Australia. So I think you know there'll be a, an attraction of capital um, into into um, these these early stage sort of companies, which is I think is fantastic to be honest. Uh, I hope you're right, Kobe. Um, one thing you said before, you said um, investors are looking for more stable returns. Do you think stability and being compensated higher with return kind of marry up? Meaning if your investment is less, is more stable, would you mm. expect to get paid less or more for that investment? If, if, if I, I, cause I totally hear you. I, I know people yeah. want, um, a bit more stability, mm, mm. Uh, but I, I just wonder stability and more return. I, I, to me, hand just hand. doesn't make sense. They're, they're both contradictory. Uh, if you go yeah. back to basic investing, but I, yeah, hey, and I, I, I could be totally wrong. Yeah, no, no, no. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a natural question to be asking. It's like, oh, if it's more risky, you know, it should be higher return. That's that's a, that's the thing that goes hand in hand. You know, it, it, I'd, I'd argue that it just depends on the asset class that you're investing in, and I just say that because. People are being compensated for lack of liquidity in credit, as an example. So if you're commanding an 8, 9, 10% return on first mortgage, which are contracted cash flows, um, you know, it is relatively low risk versus, say, a listed equity, right? but you don't, you don't have the liquidity. Um, that's where you're getting compensated because you're foregoing some liquidity to get mm. those higher rates. Yeah, of I, I, I hear you. Yep. So, so I think there's a fair compensation in that. And, and the argument I'd, I'd also um, have here is, you know, people talk about liquidity as if it's an, an essential need 100% of the time. Now, I've never liquidated all of my assets in one go at a given point mm. in time. And so you, 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 you're, you're paying away a lot of 
you know, upside for liquidity that you may not ever use. And sadly, as you know, too, you know, when there is a credit crunch, when there is a crisis, when there is a, you know, a shock to the system, you know, liquidity actually dries up when you need it the most. Uh, and so you've, yeah. you've actually foregone a lot of your, your, your return, yeah. you know, along the way um, for the liquidity that you may need to exercise. And when it, when that event does arise, you know, it actually dries up. So, so, you know, there's nothing wrong with having liquid assets. Absolutely not. But I'd argue, you know, to what extent, you know, you need liquid assets um, because you're not really exercising that optionality to mm. redeem, you know, mm. all of your, your money um, all at once at a given point in time. And, and I think, um, Kobe, that really speaks to the comments you were making before, the questions you were asking about, well, what does a financial advisor actually do? Is it this, 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 or this? One mm. of the things that I think a good advisor can do is help people um, uh, design a portfolio that aligns with their life and the things that they want to be able to do, whether it's buying a new house or whether it's buying a business or liquidating a business or whatever the case may be is being able to understand those cash flows those needs and those wants and those desires to then marry that up with the balance sheet and it's it's almost linking up you know people's lives and people's balance sheets rather than looking them at looking at them as two independent things right? yeah, isolated correct um, and so with that, you can I think a good advisor can help people build portfolios that do have, some liquidity, some illiquidity, and you mm. expect a premium for that illiquidity, but also be able to be really clear. I think investors don't do this enough is be damn clear on what you're holding and why. Mm. Why are we holding this thing? Mm. Why, we, why do we go in? What's the exit strategy? Um, you know, people, I, I find that people just typically just accumulate, 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 accumulate with no real thought or consideration around why are we even doing oh. this? Mm. How do we end up with this? this myriad of uh, or this mosaic of a portfolio that doesn't mm. really make any sense anymore. Mm. So I, th I think, um, I, th I think that's, that's really important. And mate, I, I totally agree with you. I think, I think this is an evolution. I, mm. I think that there's uh, a long time to run for this to continue, for this to be fully uh, evolved. Um, mm. Are there going to be collapses and disasters and um, tears? hundred percent there will be. I think it's just, it's just with anything, um, mm. but it goes back to designing portfolios and investments that are, that you understand and the risk is managed at a portfolio level Spot because certain individuals, 100% will fail. Yeah, um, if, if, if you look at how many companies um, underperform indexes for that matter, or how many companies collapse over a certain period of time, how many companies mm. fall out of indexes, um, a lot of people will be surprised at, at, at some of those numbers. Mm. Um Kobe Jones, I haven't seen you in real life for so long, man, but this, this goes some way in making me happy. So uh, and I, awesome and I think we're, um, we're opening up soon. Um, I'll, be, yeah. I'll be double jabbed, I think, shortly. So we'll 100% uh, we'll grab a beer at, um, before Love Chrissy. You, Mate, good to see you. Thank you so much for your insight. And I look forward to hearing how business goes for you guys because you guys are smashing it. Well done, man. 
Yeah, look, Rob, thanks very much. And I just want to congratulate you as well on the initiative that you're undertaking here in Masters in Investing and, and also your overall success. I think you are changing the landscape and just really having conversations that need to be had, I think, just generally in the industry and, you know, challenging sort of the status quo. So hats off to you, buddy. Um, thanks, man. Appreciate yeah, it. Really proud of you, mate. Yeah, really proud of you. So great to have just a, you know, casual conversation, mate. So, um, um, but yeah, thanks for your support as well. Thanks, Kevin.